The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. We've been going through the story of Joseph and talking about the gospel in the book of Genesis. Something about the Bible that you should know if you study the Bible is that the Bible often will eventually interpret itself. The Bible, much like a person who, when you ask them, what do you mean? They will tell you later, what did you mean? Or what did you mean when you said that a while ago? And they say, oh, well, I meant this. The Bible does that over time. It was written by 40 different people over about 1,500 years. And one of the things that's miraculous about it is later on, it will, it will determine what it, used, what it said before. What does this mean? If you go to Psalm 105, this text is actually referenced in verse 16, it says, he called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. This was the beginning of the Joseph story. And he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. true. If you remember last week, we talked about the dream that Joseph had, that he was given, that his brothers would bow down to him one day, that he would one day rule over them. His brothers didn't like that very much, sold him off into slavery. That's how that went last week. But here you have later, the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him. The ruler of people set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over all he possessed to instruct his princes as he pleased and teach his elders wisdom. You find out later, sometimes when you look at something through hindsight, that God is always active. He's always doing something for his purposes. And he's doing that in your life right now. Wherever your life is right now, whatever it seems like God is doing, or maybe it seems like you can't figure out what God is doing, he is doing something. And sometimes you don't find out until later or somebody else helps you out with it. I just wanted to point that out. There's an old story about a captain who was in a battleship and he was out at sea in an exercise and he was on the bridge and it was foggy and he couldn't see very well and they look out and and they see that a ship is headed right toward them. It's coming right toward them, and the captain says to the lookout, signal the other ship, change course 20 degrees north. We are on a collision course. Well, the signal came back to the ship, said negative. You change course 20 degrees south. Well, this captain was enraged. He goes, how can you talk to me that way? I'm a captain. And he says, signal back. I am a captain. You change course 20 degrees north. And the thing came back, and it said, I am a seaman second class. You change 20 degrees south. Well, as you can imagine, some of you are in the service, you just don't do that. And this captain was upset, and the captain said, send back this message. I am a battleship. You change 20 degrees north. And the message that came back was, I am a lighthouse. You change 20 degrees south. (laughs) I like that story because in a way, that's how we approach God and so many things that go on in our life. God, what are you doing in my life? It's wrong. You change it. God, you know what? I don't agree with what your word says about this thing morally. You change it. I'm not going to do that. And the problem is, is that we're speaking to God. He's the lighthouse. He's firm. And God responds, I am God. You change. How do we respond in our life when God, when things happen? How do we respond to God when things don't go the way that we want? or when things don't go the way that we expect. How do we respond to God? Imagine that you are faithful to God as a shepherd and you get thrown into a pit by your family and then sold as a slave. Imagine that you are faithful as a steward and then you end up being falsely accused and thrown in prison. I think for many of us, we would say, 
God, I just keep getting raked over the coals and I'm trying to do things right. And some of us at that point would punt, forget my faith. We just say, you know what? This isn't working out for me, so I'm out. The book of Proverbs, the Proverbs writer says this, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? It's hard to find somebody who continues to be faithful to God in all circumstances. Joseph, here's a guy who is faithful in his job. He's faithful morally. He's faithful spiritually through all of the worst times and the best. You see, a lot of us talk about faithfulness, but to find a faithful one is tough. Joseph is a great example for us. That's why we're studying him. We remain faithful to God in our work is our first point. Chapter 39, verse 1, it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When the master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. It's an interesting thing here that Joseph is sold into slavery, and then look what happens. And see, in our story here, Joseph is not portrayed as some religious guy. All right? And in fact, he's not in a religious profession. It's a secular job that he has here, okay? That's just a job that any of us might have. Some of you think you're a slave at your job. He really was. But that's kind of how it worked at that period of time. He didn't start out as a steward, though, as an attendant of all of Potiphar's affairs. Instead, he started out as a regular slave, the lowest rung of the ladder. Let me ask you this, what would you have done if you were faithful to God as a shepherd, then thrown into slavery, and you were made a slave, and you were sent to some foreign land to become a slave? How would you have responded to that in your life? Would you have cut your beard, learned Egyptian customs and language, and become the greatest slave that you possibly could? Would that have been your goal? I think for many of us, we would have bitterly resented that. We would have spit in Potiphar's soup if we could get away with it. And we would have done as little as we can while we plotted our escape. This isn't what Joseph did. Instead, he becomes a great, great slave. Why? Because his faithfulness as a shepherd, as a slave, as a steward, as a jailer, later next week as a vice president, his faithfulness is not dependent upon his understanding of what is going on. His faithfulness is not dependent upon his geography and where he is. His faithfulness is not dependent upon his emotional ups and downs or however he feels that day or where he is or whoever sees him. He's faithful because of who he is and because he knows God, because he's a believer in God. This is why he is faithful. And so wherever God puts him, he's going to do it right. And you know what happened is Potiphar noticed this. I mean, think about it. You give your slaves something to do, they're probably going to do the minimum that they have to do, and you're used to that. That's even what you expect. But Potiphar's like, man, this place looks great. What happened? All I asked him to do was take out the garbage, but he cleaned the garbage cans. He trimmed the weeds around him. My garbage area looks great. That's amazing. I asked him to mow the lawn, but he trimmed the weeds and he edged things perfectly. He reseeded where I had spots. What's going on here? I asked him to clean my chariot, but he polished it, put some armor all on the wheels or whatever they had back then. 
grease the, you know, this is amazing. Who is this guy? What is going on? And he keeps looking at everything and he says, you know what, I want this guy. I'm going to let him run my whole estate. He turns over his bank accounts. He lets this guy run everything. This guy who was a slave, he says, you know what, you're the type of person that I want to be running my, my household. You're in charge. Is this because Potiphar believed in his God? No, we don't know anything about Potiphar's belief. He's probably polytheist, Egyptian guy. He probably has no idea what it is that Joseph believes. And he could certainly care less about Yahweh. We never see that Potiphar is at all interested in Joseph's religion. But note that Joseph's faithfulness filtered down even to the lowest rung of his life, the hardest thing that he had to do. In the New Testament, most New Testament early Christians were slaves. That's why the New Testament refers to slaves so often. Most of the church people were slaves. And it addresses them frequently. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. The next passage, he talks to masters and says, you treat your slaves fairly because there is no favoritism with the Lord. You see, in our life, it's the Lord Christ that we serve and whatever it is that we're doing. At your job, you're not serving your terrible boss. You're serving the Lord Christ. See, when we have that attitude and that kind of faithfulness, it changes us. It changes how we do our job. Are you faithful in the secular things of your life? In the non-religious part of things, are you faithful in those areas? At work, on your taxes, when you're out with your friends? It's easy to be faithful when we're at church, doing church stuff. But what about the rest of our life? You see, we need to be faithful in our work and do it because our boss really is Jesus Christ. We're doing it for him. See, God, look what I did. How'd I do? That's a lot different than, hey, boss, how'd I do? See, God, how'd I do? You're going to get a better response. It's going to drive you differently. This is the faithfulness that we see from Joseph. We are to remain faithful to God in our work. Secondly, we are to remain faithful to God in our morality. Joseph is morally faithful. Joseph is a young guy, okay, and he is not a eunuch. Later on, he's going to get married and have a couple of kids, and that's going to happen the old-fashioned way, all right? He likes women, and they like him, as we read in this story. And yet, what does he do? When it comes down to making a choice morally in a land that is not moral, he says, I'm not going to go there. Egyptians were not a moral culture in this regard. He says, I'm not going to go there. I will not yield morally, and I will remain faithful to my God. 6b it says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. There's not a lot of passages in the Bible that tell us that somebody is attractive. Did you know that? There's a few, right? There's a few that even tell us that certain people are not attractive. But most of the time, that's just not in there. That's not part of it. If you read Song of Solomon, there's a whole lot of, of attraction, but it's mostly symbolism. He says to her, your hair is like a flock of goats coming down Mount Gilead. <laughs> Romantic, guys. Say that to your spouse or girlfriend later on. And you can say, I got it from the Bible. It's romantic, but apparently Joseph was a good-looking guy. 
Verse 7, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, has, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Notice this, who's he sinning against? He doesn't say, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my master? How can I do such a wicked thing and sin against your husband? How can I do such a wicked thing and sin against you or your, or your family or my friends? Now, he understands that this is about sinning against God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is scriptural teaching, and, and you know, he didn't have the Bible. He had some ideas about God from his, his family and from this dream that he knew came from God and the way God was revealing himself in those days. But he understood a few things. He understood that he needs to stay solid morally in a day where everything is decaying morally, which it was. And why did he do it? He did it because he has convictions before God. There's a difference between convictions and opinions. He doesn't have opinions here. He has convictions. It's something very different. Opinions are things that are in your mind and you convince yourself of something and then you argue with others about your opinion about God or whatever it is. We all have opinions. Convictions are something else. With our opinions, we might be right or wrong, but a conviction is something in our heart. And you don't hold a conviction. They hold you. You hold an opinion, but you don't hold a conviction. It holds you. It drives your life and your decision-making. Convictions are something that are different than opinions. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking our opinions are convictions or our convictions are opinions. We've got to be careful about that. But there's a big difference. You might have the opinion in your marriage that you will never commit adultery. But then when the opportunity comes along, you might change your opinion. But see, if you have the conviction in your heart that you will never commit adultery, you won't. Because you have a conviction before God. You see, this is really key. Do we have convictions about God's Word or just opinions? Do we go to the Word of God and, and have convictions that this is the Word of God, He's the lighthouse, this is how it really is? Or do we say to God, no, nah, I don't like that part, you move 20 degrees north. A lot of Christians, we have a fruit salad approach to the Scripture. We go in it, we like the pears and we like the, you know, the grapes are okay, but why on earth did they put a cherry in there? Nobody likes them. Let's throw them out. Don't send me an email if you love the cherries. I'm, not, I'm just not trying to pick on you. Faithfulness is the conviction that God is God and you are not. When we have this kind of faithfulness, we have a conviction that God is God and we're not. And so we trust God when he says that we should change direction, even if we don't really want to or it seems inconvenient or we don't get it. And especially when the culture doesn't get it, we still follow God. We find out here in the passage that Joseph also has some brains, some smarts, some wisdom and not just these convictions. In verse 10, he says, And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Now, some scholars think that what happened here is that she grabbed him by the cloak, and he ran out, maybe he spun out of it. And the problem is, is all he might have been wearing was a cloak. There's some disagreement historically about when underwear was invented. 
So Joseph just running out of the house. But he left. Notice, he is faithful not to lead himself into temptation. He won't get beside her. He won't hang out with her. Well, you could, she could say, well, you could just sit here on the bed with me. We don't have to have sex. He could say, okay, would you just rub my back a little bit? Would you do that? Can you just take me on a trip? Can we just go to coffee? Can we just hang out? He says, no. Why? You know why? Because he's a normal guy and he will not make provision for his flesh. You know what that means? You hear that sometimes? If you go on a hike or something, you bring some water and you bring some trail mix or whatever, you're making provision for your flesh. You need it. And if you have sexual urges, you make provision for the flesh sometimes and you want to release them. He says, I'm not going to do that here. This is not the place for it. I'm not going to do it. And he flees. This is something important for us. Eventually, you know, if you're married or eventually you want to get married, these, you know, Christians ought to have a great relationship this way because that's where it's meant to be. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes in our relationships, we don't make provision for the flesh for our spouse. And the problem is, is that the devil has somebody who will. Did you know that one out of three divorce petitions in the United States has the word Facebook in it? One out of three. One out of five, it turns out that Facebook is the, the source of it, of whatever happens. You know why this is? We make provisions. We friend our old girlfriends or boyfriends from high school or whenever, and we think so. It's, it's fun to see, you know, people that you used to know a long time ago. My uh, reunion was last uh, weekend, and I didn't go. Uh, and the funny thing is I don't really have to go. I know I'm all around Facebook. It's like, why even go? It's, uh, I know people better now than I did then. They didn't like me then. They didn't get my jokes. Uh, but I made it a rule in our house that I'm not going to friend anybody on social media who I used to date, who I had that kind of relationship for. Not that I'm worried about it, but I am a male. And you know what happens is that what happens is, is you start to have a tough time with your spouse. Everybody has that go on. And then what happens is sometimes you go and you hit the chat button and you start chatting with your old flame who understands you. And eventually you meet for coffee. That's a problem. See, this is why we have to have faithful, we be faithful to God and our morality. It affects our entire life. It doesn't have to be Facebook. It can happen at work. It's where it happens with people you spend time with all the time. You, you see somebody every day and you say, how you doing? How you doing? They say, how you doing? It's just normal stuff. But one day, you know, you, somebody says, how you doing? And you look at them and you go, how you doing? And it changes. And she laughs. And so every day you start a thing, how you doing? And you laugh and you start talking about your favorite lines from friends and your favorite characters and you start to get to know each other. And eventually you go to coffee and it's just coffee and it's just coworkers doing things, but eventually that turns into dinner and eventually it turns into staying out late. See, that's how that happens. And it happens when we're not faithful morally to God, even to ourselves, when we don't make a commitment to ourselves. that I'm just not gonna go there. This is what we learn about faithfulness and temptation. You just don't want to put yourself in that place. You make a promise to yourself to be faithful to God, and you keep that promise, and you don't put yourself in places where you might be tempted. My first ministry job was a young adult group, kind of like Kairos's on Sunday night. I had this kid come up to me, and he was just embarrassed, and he says, I just got to talk to you. I was out with my girlfriend, and uh, we were just kind of making out at the beach, and we got in the back seat of my car, and I got tempted. That's what he said. Oh, you did, huh? Well, that's normal, I guess, because you got in the back seat of your car. Don't do that. 
See, the question, you know, people do these things. They say, well, what boundaries do I set? How far can I go? How can I talk to this person at work? And if you're, you know, with somebody, what do I touch here? How does this work? How close to the cliff can I walk, mommy, without falling off? How long can I wait when I jump out of a plane to pull the ripcord so I don't die? And for some reason, this is the way that we approach God morally. Instead, the question should be, how do I be obedient to Jesus morally? It changes our way of setting boundaries with anything, with other people. Well, how can I be obedient to Jesus? How can I make sure that my heart is right before the Lord? It changes. This is what we learn from Joseph. He just wasn't going to be around. He's not going to be controlled by a society either. He's going to be faithful to God in his morality. And don't be fooled by the opinions of culture. They're not working, if you haven't noticed. And finally, we see that Joseph is faithful to God spiritually. You know, there is no promise that we're going to benefit in life for the things that we want because we make the right moral choice. In fact, very often we're going to be mocked. Very often we will be persecuted for it or falsely accused, just like he was here. Verse 13, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she's got evidence now, right? He called her, she called her household servants. Look, she said to him, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him his sto- this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story of his wife, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger like you do. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So he gets framed. And suddenly he goes from this place of high power and authority, really a great job for a slave, great job probably for anybody. And now he's in the king's prison, not a good place for anybody. How does he respond? He becomes a great convict. He becomes a great convict. Verse 20, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. What did he do in prison? Well, he was polite. He was nice. He did what he's told. And then it's time to clean the latrine. Guess what? He cleaned it, and it looked great. Could eat your meal off of it. And the warden began to notice, hey, this guy's different. I'm going to put him in charge. Isn't that an amazing thing? He's in prison. He's falsely accused. Probably death penalty is what's coming his way if they weren't backed up in the courts with those bakers and butlers and other people. You know, the thing is, as we say this, I'm sure he wasn't just whistling while he worked. I'm so glad to be in this prison. He had to be emotionally bothered and hurt. He's falsely accused. He's not there. There's no justice for him. There's not going to be. He has no rights as this Hebrew slave. There probably is no sensible hope that he would have. I think, you know, for sure, he was not glad to be there. He couldn't be doing well. But see, this has nothing to do with being faithful to God. We've got to be faithful in any circumstance. A lot of us, I think, would punt our faith 
if this was the case for us. Some of us today are going to be enraged with God if there's no donuts left after church. What happens if we actually get into some kind of trouble that we don't deserve because of some injustice? How are we going to handle that? The answer is we need to be faithful. He goes to jail for being godly. Usually we go to jail for something we actually did. But here's what he is able to do spiritually. He's able to remember his God. Somehow, in this idea, this place where he was, imagine God saying, hey, you were in the pit, and I said, one day your brothers will bow down to you. Do you still believe that? Somewhere in his spiritual walk, he still believed that, that one day that dream that he believed came from God was going to come true, and he still believed this. You're in a pit, you're in a jail, you're falsely accused. Do you still believe that one day your brothers will bow down to you? His answer spiritually was yes. Do we have times in our life when everything seems like God is not with me, that he is absent, that maybe he's not even telling me the truth, and I wonder about how can this be God? But faithfully and spiritually, I hold on and I believe something that I've learned from Scripture, that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Do you believe that? If you believe that that is a word from God, that all things work together for the good of those who love God, when you have that, you can be faithful spiritually in any circumstance. Because whatever you're going through, God's involved. He hasn't left you. You may not know that he's there, and you might have some struggles and doubts and fears. But the way you commit spiritually is you remember God's word and that he is faithful. When you do that, you're going to have hope in any circumstance. Next week, we're going to see he's going to become essentially the vice president of Egypt. He's going to save the country, including his family who comes to him and then bows down to him. I hope I'm not spoiling that for you. All he had was faith in God from stories he got from his grandparents and parents and a dream he knew came from God. That's it. Today, we are so much better off in that score than Joseph because we have a word from God. We've got a Bible, and we understand what's going on. We understand that the promises that God has made, he's already kept through Jesus Christ. Joseph didn't have that. We've got it. We understand that God keeps his promise. Does any of you lack wisdom? Ask God for it. He's going to dole it out. He's not going to necessarily take you out of whatever you're into, but he's going to help you get through it. It's a promise. Ask him for that when you're going through something. We have made promises. We have promises that God has made and kept through his son, that we can look at and have assurance. Joseph made some commitments to himself that he will not deflate his reputation secularly, morally, or spiritually just because things don't go the way he wants. And he makes these promises to himself that are good because he keeps them, because he has faith in God. I've seen a lot of men and women in our church do this. They stay faithful, and they will not live away from faith even though they've had terrible things go on in their life, terrible tragedies, unspeakable things. And I talk to them, and I hear their story, and I have no idea how I would deal with that. And I go home and say, God, if that happened to me, what would I do? How is this person staying faithful? It's such an amazing testimony to the people who know you. And I know some people have great knowledge in God's work and what he does, but when the heat comes in life, they punt and they become enraged and they do something immoral or they act out in some way and they just become like anybody who doesn't have hope in Jesus. It's not faithfulness if our faith is based only on our circumstances. We're to have faith in God all the time in every, spirit, every circumstance. 
And you know what? The thing is, is that Joseph is not even the best example of this in Scripture. He's not the only one, and he's not the best. There is a better example. There's a guy bigger than Joseph in the Scriptures. And this guy was faithful secularly. It says that as he, as he grew in wisdom and stature, and he grew in favor with God and man, Luke tells us this. But he had a good reputation with people, just secular people, people that he was a carpenter with or whoever. And this is part of the testimony of this guy. He was faithful morally. Scriptures say that we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God, they said of this man. Holy, set apart. We have come to believe that you must be the Holy One of God because you don't give in to anything, any temptation. He couldn't even get convicted of a crime at all, even in crooked courts later, Jesus. Spiritually, he went through something a lot like Joseph, but it was a lot worse. He was sold out and betrayed. He was falsely accused. He was jailed, but there's a difference. Joseph walked away. Joseph eventually walks into the vice presidency in a pretty good rest of his career. But this other guy, Jesus, he went to the cross. He went all the way. He got arrested and he laid his life down for us. You know, when you read the account of Jesus Christ, when you read your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read about Jesus Christ, you would follow him even if he wasn't God because there's no man like him. Everybody else pales. That's why it's so hard to say Jesus was a crazy person. That's why almost every faith on earth and every philosophy says, no, Jesus was a good teacher or he was a good philosopher or he was a good guy. Even though he claimed to be God and he went to death for it, what a moron if he's just a guy. It makes no sense. People like that, we don't revere them in history. Nobody does. Yet the whole planet either believes in Jesus or argues about him. Why? Because there's no comparison to his faithfulness. He was so much more. He was struck dead with our sin. That your sin and mine was put on him on the cross. He died and he's the only one who doesn't deserve to be killed to die because he's the only one who hadn't sinned. And your sin and mine was put on him on the cross. And there's a small thing that happens right at Jesus' death that gets overlooked sometimes, but the Roman centurion, centurion who was there and witnessed it, he remarked in Mark chapter 15, it says, and when the centurion who was facing him saw that in the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't do what most people do on the cross. They just hang there and, you know, they're out of breath. They can't do anything. They've been gone for a long time as far as their ability. But when Jesus died, he took our sin, that condemnation, and lifted his head and he said, it is finished, it is done. And then he died. This centurion who witnesses these crucifixions all the time was moved by that. Whenever he got interviewed by whoever wrote this down, he, that's what he remembered. This man is the son of God. Why? Because I watched what he did in his death and there's no way he couldn't be the son of God and do that. He said, this man is God's son. He is faithful to his last breath with what he is called to do by God. This is a guy, Jesus, who gives you what you don't have, righteousness and forgiveness. And he gives it to you for free. You don't have to earn it. In fact, you can't. But Jesus paid it for you. He took your sins on the cross. He really did. It happened in history. The spiritual angst and the spiritual guilt that you have, that you carry around, Jesus took it on the cross, and he paid 
The debt that you feel one way or the other you owe, he took it. What the scriptures are asking you to do is trust in him and put your faith in the conviction that comes from God and not the opinions of men. A conviction that God wants to save everybody and Jesus died on that cross for you and he took your sins upon himself on that cross that this is for real and that whoever believes in him, whoever will have eternal life. You know, the Bible is not full of a bunch of stories of great people of faithfulness like Joseph. It's full of a lot of criminals, a lot of terrible people who often come to faith who get the same grace. If you think somehow you're not deserving of it, read your Bible. There are people in there a lot worse than you who are heroes of the Bible. God loves you the same. And he sent Jesus to walk a perfect life that you can't live and you get credit for it. And he sent him to die on the cross to pay a penalty that you can't afford. But it has been done. See, we want to be faithful to God because he is. He is that lighthouse. He is firm. He is not moving. And when he says to us, change, we change. When he says to us, come this way, we come. So what can we apply in our life? Whatever you do, do it for the Lord. At your job, if you hate your job, you know what, go there and think, you know what, I got a new boss today. His, boss, his name is Jesus, and I'm going to work for him. You're going to like your job better. And Jesus is going to have you do some different things at, job, at your work, probably have you clean your desk area, probably have you throw out your old lunch in the fridge that's grossing everybody out. He's going to tell you not to take those pens home. Most importantly, though, he's going to draw your attention to a coworker who has all kinds of things going on in her life or his life, and he's going to invite you to pray for them and to start thinking about their needs and start thinking about the way you talk to them and the way you represent your faith to them, and suddenly you're going to find out, oh, I'm making a disciple now. How about that? That's what Jesus, your boss, wants you to do. And in your life, you want to keep promises to yourself about moral convictions those moral things that are in the Scripture that sometimes we just bristle at, they're there for our protection, to protect our marriage, to protect our reputation, to protect our life, protect our health. It also protects your relationship with that person at your workplace who you started to pray for, who starts to hear that you go to church, that you love Jesus, who is going to be very disappointed in Jesus if you go have an affair somewhere. It's not a good testimony. It matters. And in your life, keep those promises to yourself about moral convictions. And when you've blown it, and we've all blown it, we recognize that we've been forgiven, that God has had grace on us, that it's already been done on the cross, that so we just say, God, forgive me, and get back on track. And you can do that, and you can move forward and leave the past behind. And you can be faithful to God again. And finally, we need to be faithful to God in all seasons, even when you're lost or things don't make sense, even when things are not fair or it doesn't go the way you think. You know, God has a reason for why he's doing things that maybe we'll never find out or maybe we'll find out later. But we want to be faithful to God in all seasons. He promises that everything will turn out good for those who love him. He died for you and he rose again from the grave showing you that he is God. So be faithful in all that you do. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word and the story of Joseph and what a great example that is and how we can relate in so many ways. We thank you for that, Lord. I pray that for everybody here that
we would leave changed from how we came, that we would leave knowing more about your grace and your love for us, knowing what you want us to do in every part of our life. We thank you for this. And God, I pray that we would be aware of your presence, the presence of your Holy Spirit in each part of our life. We pray that we would be looking to you for our faithfulness and responding to you when you say change or you say come this way, that we would do that because we'd be faithful. That we'd be faithful in our work and faithful in every part of our life. We thank you for what we've learned today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.